Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Ryan and Kate Osmar are our guests today, and they are calling in from the other side of the world, actually, and 15 hours ahead of me right now in Australia. Ryan and Kate, welcome, and thanks so much for setting aside some time in the middle of your day to have a conversation with me today. No worries. Our pleasure. Uh, so I'm pretty darn excited to have this conversation. I've always been intrigued by the Australian livestock industry, and this may not be your region or anything, but I think I first kind of got intrigued by it when I started listening to and, and reading and watching videos on some of the massive cattle stations out there. But as I look more into it, what I've, I've heard, and, and maybe you'll be able to shed some light on this, is that Australia has got some of one of the most efficient ranch industries as far as labor units or cows per uh, full-time labor equivalent. And and it's just intriguing to me. So I'm really looking forward to digging into the, the industry there and and your history in, in ranching as well. And, and that's maybe where we'll start today, if that's okay with you, is would you mind sharing a little bit about your background, your family's background, and, and maybe how you ended up on the ranch that you're on today? So oh, well, pretty much my background is just um, as, a, as a young person, we were brought up just on, on a little little property and just involved in uh, horses, I suppose. So with that, going to horse breaking, um, in Queensland, like the, like you said, the place is a little bit bigger. So when you start breaking horses on the bigger places, you're involved in cattle work, mastering. Um, got pretty intrigued with that. So went down that sort of line. Yeah. And so you, you were not even from a ranch background, but you just kind of got exposed to it and that decided your career. Yes. And have you been in that industry ever since? Yes, 100%. And, and as it's turned out, it's been a blessing because... You haven't had your parents, your grandfather's influence on what on your decisions or what you do. So, you know, it's it's been great. Sure. We've been lucky that we've been on some some places that are very like minded and and very forward thinkers. So, um, when we came to this place with yeah. the sour grazing and and um, basically trying to run as many um, DSEs per hectare as we can, and that's sort of how we got down the whole kit style philosophy with our breeding and running our cattle and maybe before we even get down to that that side of it talk more about how you first started learning about ranching like you said you didn't come from a background of it so you didn't have preconceived notions and ideas of how you might want to run a ranch and so you had to learn it somewhere or start getting some ideas on how to manage it somewhere where were the first places you started to seek out information and some of the ranches that you were going to to try and learn and what did you learn? So done everything from stud, like a stud background. Uh, um, worked on a place that ran stud Brahmins. Then basically through horse mastering and that sort of thing, like like riding horses and breaking horses for people, went like going to their places, mastering for the day and doing bit that sort of work. And then went into uh, central Queensland, which was still not a big property, but it was about 50,000 acres and spent a bit of time there mastering and mastering cattle and working with a lot of good old stockmen um, or in Queensland drivers that, that taught you the, 
the cattle game and and how to read cattle and work cattle and went from there. So I'm I'm picking up on some language that's maybe a little bit different than here. When you say mustering cattle and working around and mustering cattle, uh, what kind of work? What are you are you referring to when you talk about that? Uh, basically, I suppose get like what you I suppose you call it gathering cattle. So sure. you just you just lie out in the paddock and with what like we use a lot of working dogs. So you you might have two or three fellas on a horse and they will, might have three to six working dogs sort of thing and away you go and you start putting them together, mobbing them up. The mob gets bigger and bigger and bring them back to the yards. Okay. And in most of these ranch environments, I mean, you said 50,000, was it acres or hectares in this particular ranch? Acres. Acres. Yeah. You, you considered that a somewhat small area or a ranch or station i mean how would you consider what, what would you say an average size cattle ranch and operation is in australia and i know your environments are probably similar to here and that they're pretty drastically different in different areas but uh, i suppose they all range like like when you get close to the coast they all like like we considered a good size cattle property where we are and it's about seven thousand acres um a lot of them around here are probably three to two to three thousand acres and, and smaller um and then and more you get into central queensland western new south wales they'll, they just get bigger yeah and and that's the uh, uh i don't know if you or you have any if you can kind of talk about the australian industry as a whole and in where i'm in in particular here in the Midwest and in Minnesota, in the United States, it's a pretty high input cattle industry area where it's big cows, a lot of feed, a lot of work making feeds, and then a lot of work to feed the feed, and then a lot of work to haul the manure back out. And from my understanding of Australian ranching and, and livestock industry, it's a lot less labor intensive. What's the, I mean, give an overview of what you would say the general average ranch in Australia looks like as far as their management structures, maybe a little bit on their marketing as well. Well, that I suppose it, it all varies, um, but a lot of the management structure, I suppose, they um, most people will like run grazing charts or, or, or look at their feed to say in summertime or what, whenever their rainfall is, they'll build up numbers or they'll carve their cattle um when they have the most access to their feed and then as the feed tapers off they can you know sell their wieners sell their steers type of thing there is some high input places around but i suppose as a general overview you could say they they do that they'll buy in cattle as as the season changes as you come from winter to spring or you know some some places in australia actually grow a lot of feed through winter winter so they just change their operation and they might carve or wean in different times to match the environment. And that's pretty common then that people find ways to graze, match their, their livestock to the environment and graze kind of year round and it's not as heavily a feeding area? I'd say so. Like there's still people that feed, don't get me wrong, and still a lot of studs sure. that, that will feed. But in a general, general thing, no. Okay. And so when you were working, you started mustering, which sound more, sounds like you are less in a management position. Today, you're in a management position of the ranch you're on now. What led you from working in, in more of that mustering role to, a, to a, 
ranch management role? <laughs> Just getting too old. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, and it's how you learn. Like I do believe that that you know, the, as when you're a young person, the more different properties you can get on, the more people. You might go work for someone that's really good with machinery and you might get work with someone that's really good with cattle or really good with something else. So the more you can expose yourself to a few different places, um, learn the, the really good bits of what that, that company or that property has to offer, just makes it easier to step out and, and, and get into a management role. And would you say that's pretty common for a lot of people in management and industries there to have started more on the ground level of working the ranches and working the cattle before moving into a management role? Yeah, I suppose yes and no. Like Yes, like years ago, that's how it's done. It's still done today. There's a lot more, I suppose, people getting educated and doing university, um, getting degrees and that sort of thing. But still, to this day, I'd rather employ someone that's had had the life experience and, and the work to come and work for us and you know, in managed places than rather someone that's very good at textbook, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think you're, I think you're right. I, I, I think in the United States here, it's often, it's kind of ridiculous because of so many jobs and I've got, I, I'm not too far out of college and I got a bunch of friends who are looking for jobs. And at the time when I was fortunate enough to come home to the, the family farm here, but they were looking for jobs and all these jobs that, required two to three years of on far, of some sort of work experience, but there was no way to get the experience without getting a job and you couldn't get a job without the experience. And it's kind of like they all have degrees, but they can't get a job because all the jobs require experience. It's kind of this, I don't know, conundrum that's pretty difficult. It, it is. And it's, and it's just a evolving thing. And, and sometimes that, you know, some people will be able to step out in a job in a, in a more management role because of their experience. But, yeah, I'd, I'd rather employ someone with a lot more practical experience. And Yeah. Yeah, and there's prob- probably something about building credibility as well rather than just coming straight out of school without any experience. If you're going to be managing other people to have had some experience in that actual same field and industry. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you in time, whether it was because it was the right decision or just because you were getting old, as you joked there earlier, you decided to start working towards management. Where Was there a, a kind of a progression of working up in management to where you, to the place you're on today, or did you just, or was where you are now kind of the, the first stop? Well, where it's the first stop is the same prop, is the property I'm on now, like, but we, I've worked through, so... Kobe, um, our young fella, he uh, he was two or three at the time, and there was where we were in Central Queensland. There was no access to school. He would have had to done school of the air. So we decided to move a little bit closer um, to try and find a property. And so yeah, we we're very fortunate. We found this property first, and and then been able to work through the different things and end up where we are. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing kind of how you got here. Let's talk about this, the place you are now. And, and I've already forgotten, even though I asked you before the call, how to pronounce the name of it. Um, but tell me about the the station you're at now. I mean, what's the environment, you know, the climate, the landscape, the terrain, kind of what is the context that makes up the place you're at today? Uh, so Firekabad Station, it's, it's 7,000 acres. 
predominantly we get a lot of our winter feed through spring, summer. We don't get the winters as harsh as what you guys get, but it's still cold. So we basically sort of grow grow feed from September, October through to April. And then basically what we have in April has got to last us through. Like we do get some growth, but but more sets us up. Like if we get rain through winter, it'll just set us up for our spring. So um, basically we range from uh, 1,000 metres above sea level to 1,300 or 1,350 basalt-type country. So, yeah, it's, it's hilly, but it's, it's there, there's parts of it that's, a bit scrubby, but it's, it's predominantly pretty well cleared and a good, good sort of average of mixture of trees through it. And and so when you got on that property, what was the what was the state of the property when you got on it? As far as the the enterprises that were being utilized, or was it a a, bank, a blank slate that you took over and were able to to make what you wanted? No, so basically. The owner of the property, um, Jeff Putland, he's always had a bit of a vision to do a bit of grass-fed beef. Uh, so we always had cows and calves. Because of our season, we've also always done a little bit of trading um, so we can just run, you know, a certain mum- number of cows and calves all year round. And if we have excess of feed, we could finish some steers or we could um, um, buy some old cows in and, and fatten them and sell them. Basically, we've always done that, and I suppose through Jeff's business skills, I suppose, and always wanting to make the place as profitable as he can, we're doing a little bit of benchmarking, and benchmarking against other other properties all sort of went down to DSE per hectare per 100 mil of rain, and, and with our, I suppose, the cow size that Australia currently sort of has, that we were, weren't meeting some of these benchmarks and weren't sort of hitting the targets that we'd like to hit but the people who are telling us this were very good at their numbers but weren't very good at telling us in the cattleman's point of view and we're lucky enough in 2015 i'm gonna say kit came out um with rcs and did a bit of a talk at um beef week um at rockhampton so it's a thing that happens once every three years and um kit came out and spoke and we heard it and went, wow, like this is exactly what we need. So he was doing another talk a few days later, about two hours from where we live. So just to make sure you're saying the right thing, we jumped back in the car again and went down and another listen to make sure we heard it right and <laughs> and um, figured out he said the same thing twice and, yeah, all went from that. So a couple of things you said there that were interesting to me too. First of all, you – you talked about kind of adjusting stock. I think you said you're trading cattle is, is the term you used. And when you did, when you, when you said that you kind of meant you were uh, kind of bringing in some sort of seasonal livestock, be it steers or cull cows or something to kind of adjust the stocking rate to match your grass production. Is that what you were referring to? Yeah, hundred percent. So it's basically just matching your grass with your carrying capacity. So as it rained in summer and we grew more feed, We'd buy more cattle and, and so buying cows to us was was a quick trade. Like you don't have to grow them, they just get fat. So mm. we'd buy cows or we'd join them, um, get them from empty to PDIC, change their class of um, all their type and um, yeah, get out of them basically before April. So And then whatever feed we had from April, we had to carry our cows through. 
is that pretty common or for ranches to do that or what do they do with that abundance of grass on an average year look everyone's different and i suppose the more that people are trying to match or well more people are trying to be profitable um they're getting into that a lot of people have tried feeding through summer i'm oh, sorry feeding feeding stock through winter sort of thing and um to, to carry them over but it's just not profitable well, that's, that's the very challenge we're dealing with here in Minnesota with our winters is we have this abundance of grass. We call it the spring flush. We get 60% of our grass growth in two months in May and June. And we're in a pretty heavy rainfall area, high productive area that uh, the, the grass goes to lose its quality pretty quick. And so we kind of have this, you know, abundance of grass and, and we either have to have more cows than we than we need that we have to supplement with later in the summer or we have to make hay somehow harvest the forage to store it for winter for later when in you know an ideal situation that really sounds like a great way to do it if there was a more fluid market or a good way to move cattle in and out seasonally is is that a challenge to to move cattle in and out on a short period of time or how do you do that? It, it is a little bit it's a learning curve and and don't get me wrong like we've we've made our fair share of mistakes too so um basically once we got into this whole pcc thing and we bought our first bull we we thought right oh, well let's keep as many cows as we can keep and um <laughs> to try and um you know breed as many pcc cattle so in 2019, we ended up with a, a really good drought that lasted nearly two years. That was that was a turning point that made us to realise we're going the wrong way, and we had enough of the genetic on the ground that we had to make a con uh, conscious decision to feed them to keep them. So basically, after that, we um, have made a business decision. We'll, we'll only have fifty percent of our carrying capacity as cows, hmm. and the rest of it comes in as like well, that. Cows is our good cows that our PCC bred cattle, um, and then the rest of it we can um, buy and sell. I wish you had told us that before this year, because this year we got hit by what everyone in this area talks about is probably the worst drought in in this region since 1988. And I work with a lot of off the farm, I, I work with a lot of cattlemen and grazers who I've heard destocking cow numbers anywhere from 50 to 80% of their herd. And because their entire stocking rate was cow calf pairs and they held them on too long, got rid of too much grass and were forced to sell them off entirely. So you learn the hard way too, it sounds like. And <laughs> 100% and our, our drought was a one in 100 year drought wow. you know it was it wasn't a lot of fun but we learned we learned a lot out of it so yeah 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 well I guess that's how the best way to learn maybe it's the way that you'll for sure not forget you can read something in a book or hear it on a podcast for those listening here they might hear it on a podcast but forget about it until they experience it themselves then you'll never forget again <laughs> <laughs> Hundred percent, and and you have to keep reminding yourself of it. It is, you know, when it rains, you, you got to keep reminding yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, and the other thing you were talking about there that kind of intrigued me too is, I think you had even mentioned that this was maybe before you heard Kit and and heard kind of talk of this. You were benchmarking and measuring. What was the unit you said that you were measuring something per hectare or per acre? So D D DSEs per hectare per hundred mil of rain, which is which is like a dry sheep equivalent. 
And so that, that, that means you, and when you take rainfall in account, that you can compare us in like um, in New South Wales on a high rainfall country to someone in central Queensland on 10 inches a year. Um, and we could nearly compare our farm to your farm because it just gets brought down labour unit, everything to 100 mil rain huh. DCs per hectare. What is DSE? So basically, that's a, they call that a dry sheep equivalent, and it's also called an LSU, so livestock unit. Okay. Huh. And is that common, or was that something? What what led you to start benchmarking that and comparing to, and what were you benchmarking it off of previous years or different years, or were you benchmarking against other ranches? So both, both. So it's previous years and other ranches, and it all gets – so basically, uh, a dry cow is – 10 DSC, and then a cow calf is 15 DSC, um, a little 250 kilo wiener could be, I'm going to say, 5 or 6 DSC. So, so it just all brings down the class of livestock and how many you're running for your rainfall to 100 mil rain. And how did that having, having that information affect how you managed your operation? So basically what they did is they went through, everyone in Australia obviously who took part in it, you'd you'd obviously pay them to run the numbers and they looked at your labour and they looked at basically how many cattle you're running and and they were basically telling us we're calving too early and our cows are too big but um, we should be running more cows but they weren't really putting it in a cattleman's way to make us sort of get that and it will make us really believe that. So... We were sort of trying different things and already exposed to that way of thinking. And then once we heard Kit talk, we just ran with it and went from that. So is that livestock unit, that's essentially a measurement that livestock unit per hectare per millimeter of rain. So it's essentially a measurement of how many animals or how much pounds of animals you're able to graze on a given amount of acres or, or a given amount of space based on their rainfall. Would that be similar then to comparing or to considering kind of essentially your meat production, how many, how much you're producing on a given acre? And you're saying that prior to analyzing these numbers that you are not producing what you should have been on a given hectare or acre, um, you were behind the, the average or something. Yeah, so basically in a nutshell, yeah. So basically we we're just, we, we should be running more cows Per hectare than what we were running and that that was to be in, in their eyes the most profitable hmm. and it taught us a lot of things that we were probably spending a little bit too much money on drench and a little bit too much money on other things because we had to prop up our cows and they weren't really efficient so we before we met kit we took that decision to stop worming our cows um let mother nature sort them out and the ones that couldn't go and calf raise a decent calf by themselves or we didn't want them so hmm. we sort of were in that mindset and in that philosophy before we even heard her kit talk and then basically we the cow size was our biggest thing and yeah we went from that okay is that that company or that organization that did that with you it sounds like a podcast i listen to that i think is australian based klr marketing is that was that is that a similar organization or so that that's very different but the klr is what we use for our trading that's like a bud williams type setup in in america sure yeah so 
so that's I did my course with them um, to learn out how to trade and how to do the numbers to make sure you're going to get get the right trade. Okay. We just actually have had, I don't know if you're familiar with Wally Olson or Doug Ferguson or two people who are kind of trained in, in Bud Williams sell by marketing. Yeah. And we had them uh, both on our podcast and that that's, so that's essentially the same kind of marketing style you're trying to utilize there. And, and there's a company in the, in Australia called RCS that do the, mm-hmm. the same thing, do the benchmarking, um, do training for that. Sure like-minded thing okay so you you do this marketing and you have the cow calf if you found this marketing to be profitable and in a decent way of of utilizing your grass is there a reason why you've chosen to keep both cow calf as well as this marketing enterprise as opposed to doing all of the kind of marketing and trading or all cow calf i guess you kind of touched on the cow calf already being the drought protection but Uh, i suppose over the years, the cow and calf thing is our passion and, and what we really enjoy doing with a breeding. So basically, with um, when we heard Kit talk, we thought this is the genetic that we need and we couldn't get enough of it in Australia. So we come over and bought our first bull and we just, so basically we, we bought the bull, we put him in a um, collection facility and we bring him up, bring all the semen over. Hmm. Um, we did that. We AI'd our first, uh, I think we AI'd 1,600 cows the first year. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. It was interesting. It was a big learning curve um, considering we never, I think we ran one AI program before. Oh. Um, yeah, so anyway, we, we learned a lot out of that. So we believed in it that much. We, we, we bought the bull, we brought all the semen over, and then basically just out of interest and we were that impressed about the calves, we kept like 140 bulls just mm-hmm. to see how they grew out. Um, we really didn't need that many. We only really needed 10 or 20. But we just, we just sort of kept that many, that many and Kate was talking to Kit one day on the phone and told him how many bulls we had and he said well we better do something about that and start selling them so <laughs> well, that, and that started the relationship with pcc then so yeah and then that started the relationship like we already invested in the genetic we um believed in enough i think we're on our second ai program by the time we sort of made that just went down that path but the cows and the being bulls is just a passion like we really believe in all the principles that Kit sort of says and does and um, and raising them right. And and with that, I think we're up to our fourth bull sale. Yeah, coming yeah coming is our fourth bull sale and hopefully all going to plan will have 120 bulls in it. So, wow. yeah. um, so talk about then when you transitioned your genetics, I mean, right away you weren't marketing bulls what was happening on your bottom line, your profitability or the success of the ranch as you started shifting your cow herd or your genetics of your cow herd? Well, basically we're, we're weaning uh, a heavier, like we're weaning an earlier, heavier calf. So, so, and and the biggest thing with a lot of these cows, like this type of kids animals, they're quiet. Hmm. Like when you get them that quiet, they're just born quiet. Like, um, so profitability wise like they do really well like they put on a lot of kilos back like kilos and and do quite well so weaning a heavier calf younger in your environment and in, in your climate 
is it a difficult climate? Would you say that the, the, the seasons and the, the forages are difficult and tough and require a, a different type of animal? Or is it largely just in that in, in that moderating frame size you found the ability to produce more on a given acre? Or, or what would you say the other advantages maybe that you've seen from shifting the genetics? So it is, so our country is a high rainfall. We get like nine, 900 to 1,000 um, mils a year. Hmm. So it's a, it is high rainfall country. So with that becomes a lot of parasites, a lot of worms, a lot of things that traditional farming practices, I suppose. So with that, we the place is split up into 11 hectare paddocks. Oh, wow. So roughly like 3,000 hectares split up into 11 hectare paddocks. That's a lot of... <laughs> That's a lot of subdivision. Yeah, yeah. Roughly, yeah, give or take. Well, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, and then we'll run cow mobs, like we'll run mobs from anything to three, four hundred cows in a mob to I got two thousand young cows running around in a mob right now. So, yeah, so with the cell grazing, pasture management, soil, soil and plant diversity, we've sort of got things humming along pretty good, um, learning to get better and better at that. And um, basically, you know, when you start putting $10 worth of wormer down a cow's throat and a lot of vaccines, like we, we haven't wormed the cow for a long time. Yeah, like we'll be getting close to 10 years. So, so they, just, they just do it on their own. And they, they, that was the biggest thing of breeding, bringing in, I suppose, um, the PCC genetics. It, it wasn't so much for the size, like there's other genetics in australia that you could have done that with but they didn't have the hardiness they didn't have the 30 years behind them of of breeding you know worm resistant hardier type cattle and fertility mm-hmm. is fertility an issue in australia largely and they the the cattle and and again my my experience with australian livestock is very minimal i mean i listen to the central station podcast which talks to some large stations and very remote areas and so talk as if the person you're talking to knows nothing because i don't um but yeah fertility would be a little bit of an issue like it's something that australia i suppose as the the properties have to become more profitable it's, it's something that they're all te- a lot of people are tending to look for a lot of people now are carving down it too where they never expected their females to be pregnant until they're two which is a lot to do with your bottom line like getting calf on the ground earlier and get them back in calf so i think a lot of people are, are getting better at that um the more property prices go up and wages and all that sort of thing go with it that a lot of people have got to get a lot smarter and um find other ways to produce more dollars or, or to save on more dollars it's interesting that you're talking about it. as stuff rises, they're forcing themselves to, you know, be more profitable essentially because I'm assuming that their margins are getting shrunk as as things get more expensive. Historically, I mean, has percent yeah, and so has like historically, has Australian land, rent, cattle, whatever it is, been undervalued to a point where that that lower management could still afford a decent lifestyle and produce a decent income even with poorer management and maybe a little bit lower fertility rate and a little bit less productive ranches possibly like yeah possibly especially 20 30 years ago yes sure but now as as land is getting more valued i suppose banks are less willing to 
erode an asset. So they're sort of wanting you to make money, really. So as you've started marketing some of these genetics to other people, then what do you hear from them? Yeah, like at this stage, like you're still in an early sort of stage in the whole PCA thing. We call PCA like Fire Cattle Australia. Mm. But now a lot of people are really impressed how these the calves are born. Like they're born really easy. They're a lot smaller than what most people are used to. But because there's no pressure on the cow, there's no calving issues, the, the calf's up and going, she comes in milk really quick, and then they just go. Yeah, there's a lot of phone calls, how how easy that is, and, yeah, like a lot of people are very impressed. So. Okay. No, it, it's fascinating to hear just how things work in different environments. I mean, that's one of the advantages of here in the United States, having cooperative producers from, you know, the southeast to the southwest and in arid territory up to the you know great north of, of minnesota as these genetics work in different environments and now you guys are proving that it works in a whole nother country you know a whole nother side of the world and so it's just good to hear that it it's successful in your environment yeah, yeah it's, like it's really cool like to be honest like our environment like right where we are in glen Innes, new south wales it's it's a good rainfall environment it's it's not very hot but being in australia like when we went to america we've been to america four times now and like the young foe um rides um buck and bull so it's really good we can sort of go over there and he can do that and we can we can see kit and, yep um so it's really cool so we've seen them in every different environment mm. that every time we end up somewhere with cove riding we're always ringing kit up to see if there's PCC cattle in wherever we are to go and have a look at. And mm -hmm. it's really cool to see him running, yeah, lots of different environments. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. I, I, I don't think all of our listeners here uh, on the Herd Quitter podcast probably have PCC bulls, but I, I think we've got 32 different states or 32 different countries represented that are listening to this. And, and you know, if there's anyone thinking this maybe doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, it's working all over the world now and all over the country here. And in, in case you were curious, 7% of those listeners come from Australia. So there must be a decent amount of people over there interested in this these philosophies and things as well. And huge. And it is. And, and it's a growing thing. And it's, and it's the philosophies of how the cattle are run. It's, it's the, a lot of people getting into, the, like, same deal with the pasture um, and the sale grazing, there's a lot of interest in that, and, and now it's, it's growing 100%. Yeah. Talk a little more about your sale grazing management. I mean, is it all permanent infrastructure, or do you do polywire subdivisions? Uh, how are you running that? It, it started off at um, so two, two electric wires. Um, now that we're sort of getting used to things and getting a little bit, oh, well, I suppose a little bit better at it, or um, we just we only run cattle too. So mm -hmm. Now it's just one hot wire, so it's 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 permanent. Like we're not pulling it down. So basically, there's one star picket every twenty to thirty meters, and one hot wire. So it's it's permanent. The, the electric fences are permanent. It all runs off main power, but it's it's you can pull it down if you wish to. Sure, and like I'm still blown away by I mean how many paddocks you have. Every 11 hectares, I mean, you've got hundreds of paddocks, permanent infrastructure uh, that that you're working with. How? What have you seen, I guess? I mean, if you could go back and start over, if you had a blank slate of 7,000 acres and you were deciding, you know, I want to improve my management, what would you do starting from scratch? 
Probably the only only thing we do a little bit different because of our hills, we're very limited with water. So basically, we we pump out of a creek, we pump to a um like a three hundred thousand liter tank, and then from there we pump to another three hundred thousand liter tank, and then gravity feeds hmm. um, over the whole place. of gravity gravity wow. feeds other tanks, other water troughs. So so we're a little bit limited, but. One thing I do really like is is leader follower mobs, like um, especially if you've got a, a some steers or some empty heifers that you, or empty cows that you try and put weight on, well, they can go in front and eat the ice cream and then your cows can come behind and hmm. just be the tractor and just um, do a job on everything else. So probably would, would do a little bit different with that. So the leader follower, they won't run into each other as much with troughs and sort of thing but the place is like the place was set up just before we come and it, it is set up very well probably probably would have left a few more permanent fences in but other than that like it's all good yeah and what would you say have been the best the biggest benefits i mean have you i guess you said it, you came into it so you've not known it any other way but have you seen in, in comparison to ranches around you uh, stations around you improvements or or differences in the way grass responds or grows or, or anything it does it does grow very well it does respond very quick our organic matter is is very good like it all the microbes and stuff are doing a very good job but it's something we've got to get better at like we're always looking to get better and, and um we we don't do synthetic fertilizers or anything like that but we might put out microbes or or put out something that our country is missing well i guess maybe i haven't asked this when did you start on this ranch we've been here 15 years okay wow and so in in your 15 years experience there what would be some of the greatest things you've learned you would say your, your takeaways that you would maybe recommend uh, some other people look into or research more from from that experience well that de- definitely the sale grazing like just resting country like is it, a powerful tool there, there's lots and lots of different ways to do it learn a lot with how you handle cattle in those situations and um different ways of moving them um like the uh, low stress stock handling in australia which is same as your bud williams learn sort of a lot from that on, on how just how to have the cows in the right mindset there's no point doing all this and mobbing up if every time you drive past and a buggy or a four-wheeler or there's the neighbor drives past and they all run to the fence looking for a move like like it sort of defeats the purpose mm. so mm-hmm. the cattle handling basically our mineral programs uh, we use a, a pat colby type mi- mineral program it, it's just very basic type minerals that our cattle or our country might be lacking in we provide that and a little bit of salt and apple cider vinegar and away they go and are there any resources kind of as we start pointing this conversation towards wrapping up here? I don't know what resources might be specific to Australian producers. We do have a good chunk of our listeners that are there that if you had any recommendations, maybe some of the organizations, conferences, books, podcasts, things that you've read in the past or looked into in the past that have helped you along your journey of managing a property in this way, uh, what would you recommend as far as some resources to, to a person getting started? I suppose the uh, the best thing about COVID, in my opinion, is a lot of um, podcasts yeah. that have come about that 
there wasn't around uh, 18 months ago. So it, it's great. It gives you a whole access to different things. But I suppose um, RCS, RCS in Australia is very good for gra- grass management, the whole holistic management. KLR is the marketing that you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, LSS, the, the stock work. But for me, it's, it's well, for me, it's, Kit too, like Kit and his emails that he puts out, um, what you guys are doing, having just, I suppose, different access to like Jim Garish, probably mm-hmm. follow him a fair bit and listen to his podcast on the moving car and different things. So mm-hmm. the whole cool part about, the only good thing about COVID, I suppose, is that like you got a lot more access to yeah. podcasts and different things that you wouldn't have access to. Yeah. What are some of your favorite podcasts? Obviously, Herd Quitter is your number one, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, what are some of the podcasts that, <laughs> <laughs> that, you, that you like well, to listen Jim, to a Jim, lot? Jim Garish. No, so Jim Garish ones are good, but it's hard. He doesn't have his own podcast. You just got to track, track down whichever one, like what he's talking on. Um, Graham Sait is one that we listen to a lot. He's now become our agronomist. Now he's shut down with COVID. It's been good. We've been able to use him and pick his brains on the soil and the biology a fair bit. The Graham Sait one's very good. But, yeah, just a lot of different ones. And like your podcast, someone will come on that you think that's really cool. So you go and research that thing and look at what they're doing. And Yeah. 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 No, that's that's the problem with the podcast is you're forced to try and cram a lot of stuff into like a 45, one 45 minute to an hour conversation. And very rarely can you cram a person's career, or, you know, all of the wisdom some of these people have, like Jim Garish was kind enough to come on a couple times. And, and I'm sure we still could talk a lot longer, but it's, a, it's at least a good place to get exposed to some people and some ideas that you can then dig into further. Oh, huge! And and another like a tool we use on the place is is my grazing, mm. and it's it's really cool. And it's same thing that we were talking about before, like matching your stocking rate, the current capacity it gives you a way of tracking that. And um, there's a lot of really cool things out there. So yeah, yeah. Well, any final thoughts or tips that you want to share? Any anything that comes to mind that I haven't talked about? Well, just more for like I suppose. Well, thank you for having us on, but um, it's just basically like what this genetic has done for us has is, is been amazing, you know, like just having the hardiness and, and you know, the fertility that these things, the, these cattle have brought to the table. It's, it's been a passion of Kate and mine for a long time and just to see that evolve and and see that evolve through to a grass-fed product and, and we've now got four or five people that do the whole paddock paddock to plate thing and mm-hmm. um they're very interested in what we're doing and using these this genetic and mm-hmm. this way of the way the cattle are raised so it's it's really cool well good i appreciate it i'm glad that you were able to get connected with kit when you did and that this is working out so well and i really appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing your thoughts with all our listeners thank you thank you thanks for having us I guess I'll let you get back to work and I'll head to bed. (laughs) The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. 
And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.